Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the hard way to enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Coming up later on Air Talk, the authors of the new book, A City on Mars, Can We Settle Space? Should We Settle Space? And have we really thought this through? Kelly and Zach Weinerstein will be Weinersmith, excuse me, will be joining us to talk about their new book of that title. Also, it's Thursday. That means our TV critics are here for the second hour, and we'll be talking with them about uh, some of the new and returning series that they think are most promising. But we begin with political news. Yesterday, the surprise announcement, at least to many, that Kevin McCarthy, up until two months ago, the House Speaker will be resigning his position at the end of this calendar year and uh, will not be seeking re-election. That means more than likely that Governor uh, Newsom is going to have to call a special election uh, next March and next November to fill what will be the open seat for that Bakersfield area district. But this comes on the heels of over the past month or so, uh, nearly a dozen Republicans saying they're not going to run for re-election. We, of course, had the ouster of George Santos after the ethics report came back with its damning conclusions about his behavior. So for Republicans, a lot up in the air heading into 2024. With us to talk more about this is Politico California Playbook co-author Laura Cordy. Laura, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it very much. How much of a surprise was it uh, that uh, the Congress member made this announcement yesterday? I think certainly people were expecting this. Maybe some of the more cynical folks in Washington and California were expecting this. You know, as you mentioned, uh, Kevin McCarthy was removed as Speaker of the House just a few weeks ago, and that's a historical move. Um, The fact that the House removed a Speaker for the first time in history via a a motion to vacate And, you know, he would have had, I think, a tough hill to climb in re-election. He dealt with a very unruly body. Um, A lot of people criticized him for the fact that he let the far-right members of the Republican caucus run the show at times. He was seen as going back on some promises that he had made. It would have been a a grueling cycle for Kevin McCarthy, I think. So as much as I think, especially in Bakersfield, folks are disappointed and saddened to see him go, I think they're pretty understanding of his decision. And it'd be good to talk a bit about his popularity in Bakersfield, even as he went through through all of this. For many, I mean, uh, obviously Democrats uh, in the Southern Central Valley would see it differently, but but among the large numbers of Republicans, majority of voters there, he's really seen as the hometown guy who did good. 
Absolutely. And that's something that, um, you know, Mark Salvaggio, a former Bakersfield City Council member, told Politico this morning in Playbook, you know, he said he is the hometown boy who made good. People are really sad. They're disappointed. He's well liked in Bakersfield. And I think across, you know, California's Republican Party in general, he served time in the legislature in Sacramento. Um, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, lovingly referred to him as Bakersfield boy. He certainly is somebody who carried a lot of weight for the party, especially on the national stage. And um, he's he's well liked here. But uh, again, I wonder, I think this is just, um, you know, a personal decision for Kevin McCarthy after a pretty a pretty tough time in Washington. Fair to say this is a safe Republican seat going forward. Yeah, absolutely. There's not going to be a chance for Democrats in this Kern County district. Um, we can talk a little bit about who is possibly going to run for that seat. We haven't gotten confirmation from these two, but two Republican lawmakers, State Senator Shannon Grove and Assemblymember Vince Fong, are widely expected to be potential replacements for that seat. Um, and they both have some, some pretty strong ties to Kevin McCarthy. Vince Fong actually had him at his wedding and called him one of his best friends yesterday. All right. So those two. And again, they would likely be on the ballot in the March primary uh, for this seat. And then uh, the final vote uh, would be in November. What happens in the meantime with this district? Do Laura, do they have any representation in, until the successor is chosen? Right. Well, so we, we talked with the Secretary of State yesterday, and the way that it goes is after the filing deadline for running in 2024 ends, which is December 8th, um, it's up to the, if somebody resigns, it's up to the governor to call a special election. So because Kevin McCarthy said he plans to resign at the end of the year, that will go to the governor to call a special election for that seat. It's going a little bit tricky for voters, I think, because as we mentioned again in playbook this morning, you're going to have that special election happening around the same time you're having primary races happening and then the November election, of course. So voters in that district are basically going to decide at the same time on somebody to fill that vacancy to finish out the rest of Kevin McCarthy's term and vote for somebody to, you know, represent the district for the next term. So it could get a little bit tricky, but we expect to see candidates on, on both of those ballots. And with the seat uh, vacant until uh, the results of the March election. Right. That's correct. All right. We're talking with Laura Cordy of Politico's California Playbook. She's the co-author of it and covers state politics. Also with us, Republican political consultant Rob Stutzman. His firm is Stutzman Public Affairs based in Sacramento. Rob, good to have you back with us. Um, I would take it uh, you were not particularly surprised by the decision announced yesterday. No. Good, good morning, Larry. Not entirely. I, I had from what I was hearing, had arrived at the conclusion that Kevin was unlikely to run again, which that decision is coming, uh, is upon us as the filing deadline is closing. But the fact that he's going to resign and and vacate the seat um, was a little unexpected to me. Yet, you know, I, I also don't, I, also I think it makes sense for him. Once you have been at the pinnacle of power that he has been at, uh, it's not uncommon to no longer want to remain around the the institution if they're not going to have you as their leader. What does this mean for other California Republican members of the House? You know, given the formidable fundraising ability of McCarthy, does does this impact them at all? You know, it, it will impact them slightly. Uh, the Republicans who are in competitive seats are going to be well-funded uh, regardless. But look, going forward, uh, you know, Speaker Johnson does not 
have the fundraising experience, relationship, and prowess that McCarthy had. This is the the great political self-inflicted wound of what the those you know band of House Republicans did when they vacated uh, the chair is they they took away really their great political leader and great fundraiser. So ultimately, I, I think it has some trickle down effect. There's no way that vulnerable Republicans are happy about this about Kevin being removed, but ultimately, I don't know that it would sway their races uh, next year. Rob, I don't know whether you had a chance, because this just came out um, this morning, uh, very early in the morning. The LA Times did a lengthy piece uh, about uh, leadership pack that Kevin McCarthy uh, has access to and massive amounts uh, of spending at the Terranea Resort on Palos Verdes Peninsula and for uh, meals at very high-end restaurants, things like this. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars, multiple times what other House leaders have have spent uh, out of out of leadership packs. I don't know anything about uh, a leadership pack and how this operates. The article says there's there's nothing here that required um, more disclosure. There there was there was nothing illegal about this. But your thoughts about these kinds of expenditures, if you have any. Well, those expenditures are not unusual for fundraising. Uh, if you are a top fundraiser and running an elite fundraising operation, it would be not be uncommon to see those types of expenses. Uh, if you looked at uh, you, traditionally the California State Speakers Pack, who hosts a big lavish fundraiser at Pebble Beach every year, you would see similar types of expenses. So, I mean, any suggestion that Kevin McCarthy was into fundraising and political power um, for those types of, of perks just, you know, isn't borne out by the, the history and legacy of, of his career. Uh, he was just, he was a voracious political animal. He recruited candidates, he raised money for them, and he did it uh, without peer over the last decade and a half. So for for the party, what does this say with, with so many of, of the members who've said they're not going to run for re-election and uh, we know, of course, President Trump with a massive lead in polls going into next year's presidential election. What does this say about the state of the Republican Party in Congress and its future? Well, for for this Republican, it's unfortunate because you're seeing the the House of Representatives Republican delegation conforming more to a a MAGA uh, Trump image that is proving it's incapable of governing. You know, what we would call, I call the normies are leaving. Uh, you know, Patrick McHenry of North Carolina, who became prominent during the speaker debacle because he was the acting temporary speaker, uh, he also announced this week he's not going to run again. Well, this is one of the most, you know, accomplished, thoughtful, deal-making lawmakers that the Republicans have in Congress. So you look at people like Paul Ryan who aren't there anymore since the advent of the era of Trump. And so it's, you know, th this is all just more evidence that, People that care about the institution, not just Republicans that care about their party getting back to a more Reagan-esque track, but Americans in general should be very concerned about the direction of the Republican House delegation. Rob, thank you as always for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. Rob Stutzman uh, is Republican political consultant. My thanks to Politico California Playbook co-author Laura Cordy. It's Air Talk on LA, it's 89.3. Coming up, we talk about a new study coming out of Stanford University looking at a phonics-based reading program 
and what sorts of gains it's been able to make versus those that are more whole language based in their approach. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. We'll be back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. For nearly 40 years, I've been covering the so-called reading wars. Yes, that's as long as I've been on the air, <laughs> because these are ongoing. And here in California, they have been particularly hard fought. There are advocates of what's called whole language who say that this is really a better way for most students to learn because it doesn't have the drudgery of the phonics approach, as they say, and really gets kids into the excitement of reading, a more creative process to learn to read. Advocates of phonics, uh, which was dominant when I was a kid growing up in uh, L.A. City schools, say that really providing the phonics-based tools is the best way to open the joy of reading because kids develop a mastery that's difficult to have uh, using a whole language approach. Well, not necessarily necessarily so black and white, and there are always complexities beyond how this is pitted in media. But joining us to talk about a new study which attempts to get at uh, a phonics-based program and, and how it performs uh, is Sarah Novikoff, who's Ph.D. candidate in educational policy at Stanford's Graduate School of Education and the lead author of a study that looks at California's early literacy support block grant. This is money that, resulting from a lawsuit was provided to 75 different schools with the lowest achievement levels. And the science of reading method, which is a phonics-based approach, was used in those schools. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. We, we appreciate it. What did you find of this approach? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So our study, like you said, evaluated this big statewide effort to improve the literacy skills of students in California's lowest performing elementary schools. And this program was not just science of reading, it also allocated a little bit of additional funding, about $1,000 per student, and extensive support from experts about how to spend that money on literacy skills and on the science of reading. And my co-author, Thomas D., and I measured if this effort was successful and found that it was, raising the average test scores by what we say is 0.14 standard deviations. But you can think of that as about 25% of the learning that normally would have taken place between second and third grade. And explain to us what the hallmarks of this reading curricula look like. 
Sure. So the science of reading kind of describes a process to teach reading by sequentially building up an understanding of what we call five pillars. So the first is phonemic awareness, which is the ability to kind of listen for and identify the component sounds within a word. And then once you've got a sense of the sounds, you go into phonics, which is pairing those sounds to letters or letter pairs, then to fluency, which is kind of moving those letters and letter pairs together smoothly and accurately, and then vocabulary, which is understanding the meaning of those sounds, and then comprehension, which is kind of putting all those sounds from individual words together into sentences and passages. And what does this tell us about the differential way that kids learn? Because there's an argument not all kids necessarily um, have a way into reading using the same technique. So does, does this argue that across the board, this science of reading program is going to be effective or, or for a subset of students? So this program specifically was in the 75 lowest performing schools in the state of California, and those schools were identified based on low performance kind of pre-pandemic in 2018 and 2019. And I think one of the things that's really important to highlight here is that this program kind of allowed schools the flexibility to implement this curriculum, but in the way that they were perhaps thought would be the most effective for their students. So for some schools, that was hiring an instructional coach to observe teachers and help them improve. For some schools, that was purchasing textbooks. For some schools, it was instructional aides who could work one-on-one -on -one and in small groups with students. So what this looked like in actual schools depended on the school context. We're talking with Sarah Nov uh, Novikoff, who's Ph.D. candidate, Stanford Graduate School of Education, lead author of the research project we're talking about. Also with us is Becky Sullivan, director of K-12 English Language Arts for the Sacramento County Office of Education. Uh, Ms. Sullivan is the project lead for uh, the literacy grant. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We, we appreciate it. Uh, share with us in, in Sacramento how this played out. Hi. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Good to talk to you and have you on the call, too. Yeah, so Sacramento County Office of Education was awarded the Expert Lead in Literacy Grant to work with the Early Literacy Support Block Grant Schools, and we just ended our three-year part of the grant with them. And our charge was to help the sites develop and implement literacy instruction and support programs in grades K-3 to help them improve their student outcomes in reading. And there were a few things that we had to do that were laid out in the settlement. Uh, we had to help them do a root cause analysis and a needs assessment and put together a literacy action plan. And there were parts of the literacy action plan that were also called for in the settlement. And there were four categories, um, such as things that Sarah called out where they could have a reading coach, they could purchase curriculum, they could focus on things like um, interventions or MTSS, parent and community engagement. And one of the things that uh, we did is we um, made sure that they had literacy goals at the forefront. And in the template that we put together, we put that right at the top of the template. Now, is this, is this, Oh, I just wanted to clarify, is this individualized for each student learning to read, or was this group-based? Yeah, so uh, it's the way that the statute read was that they could do a site plan or a district plan. So they got to choose. And if they, uh, for instance, if they were going to put interventions in place, interventions would be at the student level. 
And we, um, our County Office of Education has always been grounded in the science of reading. So everything that we do in terms of professional development is always grounded in the science of reading. So um, because there was this element of continuous improvement around root cause and needs assessment, those were really our two foundational models that we went forward with was continuous improvement and science of reading. And, and we put together a three-year plan, then following those that first six months where they put their plan together. Explain to us, for those who aren't familiar with the term, what science of reading encompasses. Yeah, so science of reading is about 50 years worth of research that pulls from multiple fields, cognitive psychology, uh, communication, developmental psychology, education, special education, linguistics, neuroscience, and it's not just phonics. A lot of people, when they hear science of reading, they think it's an idea, philosophy, a political agenda, one size fits all. They think it's a program, but mostly they think it's phonics, and it's actually not. Um, so in to uh, explain it, I think most easily, when we train folks in it, we say that it's word recognition and language comprehension. And to easily explain that, we use Scarborough's reading rope. And on one side of the rope, you have word recognition, which most people think of as phonics. And it would be things like phonological awareness, decoding and spelling and sight word recognition. And you have to become increasingly automatic in that so that you can lift the words off the page. You have to be able to decode the words. And then on the other side of the rope, you have language comprehension, and that's being able to understand what you read, having background knowledge, vocabulary knowledge, language structures, verbal reasoning, and you have to become increasingly strategic. And if you think of yourself as a reader, you at this point can pretty much read most every word that you encounter, but over the course of your lifetime, your language comprehension, it continues to grow. You continue to add to your background knowledge. You're always learning new words. You use that language structure and you apply it to everything that you read. And as you become increasingly strategic and increasingly automatic, you become a more skilled reader over time. And you need that fluency um, to be able to read at a rate fast enough that you can understand what you are reading as you're reading text. You said at the beginning that uh, Sacramento County has uh, used this approach to teach reading for many years. What yeah. convinced what convinced the Sacramento County Board of Education and the districts in the county to use this approach in, instead of whole language? Uh, well, we um, we were the state. Um, technical assistance center for reading first. So we have had years and years and years of training from renowned researchers in the country in the science of reading. We've also used it in our own classrooms and out in the field and working with teachers. And I will tell you in my own teaching program, I was trained in whole language and to sum it up in one sentence, I was taught bathe them in language and they will learn how to read. And guess what? It didn't work. Didn't work. So yeah. It, <laughs> and it turns it turns out that um, nearly every child learns how to read exactly the same way. The brains all work the same way. We're talking 
With Becky Sullivan, directs K-12 English, English Language Arts at the Sacramento County Office of Education and is the project lead for uh, the Expert Lead in Literacy Grant. Also with us, Sarah Novikoff, Ph.D. candidate, Stanford's Graduate School of Education, lead author of the study, which looked at these millions of dollars uh, that were allocated coming out of a court settlement filed by, by parents of students who weren't learning to read. Uh, that money allocated for what's called a science of reading method, which, as Becky Sullivan just described, uh, is not just phonics, though that is a component of it, but all these other interventions as well to help kids be able to master reading. If you have questions or you want to weigh in on this, we're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at LAist. Dot com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, Sarah Novikov um, has, is pretty much the teaching profession coming around now to this idea that, uh, for particularly for districts where you have um, lower uh, lower levels of reading, that you need to do a uh, a phonics-based approach with these sorts of tutoring and individual supports? So I do think states and districts are coming around on this. We see that 32 states and the District of Columbia have passed some version of a science of reading law in the last decade or so. But a lot of the evidence kind of for its implementation hasn't necessarily been there yet. So Becky mentioned Reading First, which was this large federal initiative to put science of reading curricula into schools. And the study on Reading First showed that it actually didn't affect uh, reading comprehension for students who are in that program. And so one of the things that I think our study adds to this kind of evidence base is the really important idea that implementing on the ground with real teachers and real kids can work, that we can move it out of a laboratory idea and into actual classrooms, and then we can see big gains. And a lot of those gains we think come from both the science of reading curriculum, but also kind of the structure of the grant. In addition to science of reading training, the grant also provided the funding and provided this kind of blend of oversight and flexibility that Becky was talking about, right? Having a root cause assessment, having schools think about their data and think about what it would look like to improve and make choices that made the most sense for their community and how to implement this. What would that the, kind of flexibility we think is really important. What would the cost be to make this universal? So this program cost about $1,000 per student in these low-performing schools. Um, so you could scale that up to the many millions um, in California. But I also think it's important to point out, though that cost sounds really large, this program was cost-effective. Like if we gave that money to schools, generally speaking, versus giving it to them in this way with this targeting and this support, this grant program was 13 times more cost-effective than just giving schools the money generally speaking. So though it would be expensive, we expect it to be effective. All right. Uh, and it, is this something that is being advocated for with the California legislature to make this a universal program? Um, I personally haven't heard anything about um, universal, but one of the things I've heard about is the literacy coaches and reading specialist grant, which um, actually Becky will also be working on at the Sacramento County Office of Education. So perhaps she can speak to it better. Mm -hmm. But basically, the program um, will be funding reading coaches 
and um, literacy, sorry, literacy coaches and reading specialists um, for schools with a high percentage of low income students, English learners or homeless or foster youth. Becky Sullivan, is this something that would make sense to make universal or is it really only needed in schools that have lower levels of reading? I think it makes sense for all schools because, again, all kids learn how to read the same way. And and the program did uh, offer a lot of choice. And the the early literacy support block grant schools did not have to engage with us. They did in the beginning because their funding was tied to that literacy action plan. And then after they were funded, we had about 86% engagement from the sites. Um, so those, I, in some ways, I call this a, um, a lead a horse to water grant because you have, this is really hard work, reading reform and improving the literacy achievement of your students is really hard work. And so we said, if you come to our sessions and you look at your data and you make the changes to your literacy action plan based on your data, and you become really good consumers based on what you're learning, and you become better instructors um, with the research-based materials that you are purchasing or that you have, you will see improvement in your data. And they did. You can't just come to a training and then do nothing. It is very hard work. And Sarah mentioned the new grants uh, that are out there, and um, there's a, almost $500 million out, that's uh, out there in the field right now. Half of it was released last January, and the second cohort of schools is giving their money this January uh, to fund reading coaches and literacy specialists. Our county office of education was awarded the educator training portion of that grant, and we were just getting started with it. So we're going to be running professional development uh, for the next five years, training uh, principals and coaches and site literacy teams, we're pulling in some of some of the really good parts of the ELSD grant um, into this new project. Well, it's 833 schools. It's massive. What What is the biggest challenge with teachers uh, being able to to teach using this curriculum? What um, I assume some of them learn to read using whole language. I wonder if that makes yeah. it a little bit harder for them to then teach what is a phonics-based approach. Yeah, I think, um, well, so it's not a curriculum. Um, and I think part of it is time. Everybody is really busy. Um, so getting the training that you need and being in a coherent system so let's say you come out of a university, you come out of your teaching program, and you were in a teaching program that really supported the science of reading. And then let's say you're hired by a district that is a balanced literacy district. So now you, how, how do you then implement what you've been taught when you are in a balanced literacy curriculum in a balanced literacy district? So that's really hard, and we have that in California. Or you come out of a university that was more uh, balanced literacy based and you go into a district that's more science of reading based. Now you have to learn the methodology for science of reading. So now you have to be retrained in a way, or let's say you go into a district that's more of a district of choice and everyone's kind of doing their own thing. Mm. So we are very much believe in a coherent system where you have a comprehensive assessment system, where you are building 
systematically building the capacity of your staff. So you have a cohesive curriculum plan and you have a support system for everybody. You've got coaching. Maybe you have an MTSS system where you've got tier one, tier two, tier three, and that is coherent. Um, All right. And everyone's on the same page with each other. Let me it's share the only way to move the system forward. Let me share a couple listener comments. Monique in Glendale emailed, Growing up, I found phonics to be stifling because I'd learned to read by reading with my parents daily. Phonics felt like it sucked the joy out of reading and stagnated my growth as I was waiting for everyone else to catch up. That's Monique in Glendale. Uh, Dorrit in West Adams said, I'm a voracious reader, but unlike most folks, I don't read words. I read sentences and paragraphs. It's a dyslexia thing. I was taught to read in the heyday of phonics, a system that worked for me, but only with words with fewer than six letters. When you add any more letters to a word, they swim together, dancing around the page. Whole language would have been great for someone like me. My point is we need more than one approach to teaching reading. Thank you, Dora. Thank you, Monique, for sharing your comments. And I want to thank our expert guests for joining us on Air Talk. Becky Sullivan of the Sacramento County Office of Education, where she directs the K-12 English Language Arts Program. And thanks to Ph.D. candidate in Stanford's Graduate School of Education, lead author of the study we're discussing, Sarah Novikoff. It's Air Talk on LA, it's 89.3. Coming up, we talk with the co-authors of the book, A City on Mars. Can we settle space? Should we settle space? And have we really thought this through? They're the co-authors of the popular science book, Soonish. Kelly and Zach Wienersmith joining us to talk about A City on Mars when we come back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. All seven states on the Colorado River may have to cut back water, but not everyone agrees on how. From Coloradans who blame others for the crisis. There continues to be a look upstream to solve a problem that we did not create. To farmers who may lose their livelihoods. We don't want to cut equal with everybody else. Will they reach a deal in time? Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. We have breaking news. According to California's nonpartisan legislative analyst's office, the state is facing a $68 billion budget deficit, most of it coming from lower-than-expected tax revenues this year. California delayed its tax filing deadline to November this year because of the damaging storms last rainy season. That forced the governor to come up with a spending plan without knowing how much money the state would ultimately have. The legislative analyst's office says revenues for the 2022-23 budget year ended up 
$26 billion below previous estimates. And the uh, state legislative analyst says that uh, cutting uh, spending on education and taking money from the state savings account could help balance the budget. That just in. It's Air Talk on LA is 89.3. We turn our attention to space and particularly should we colonize it. Joining me are the co-authors of A City on Mars. Can we settle space? Should we settle space? And have we really thought this through? Kelly and Zach Wienersmith joining us. Uh, their husband and wife research team. They co-wrote the best-selling popular science book Soonish. And uh, Dr. Wienersmith is an adjunct faculty member at Rice University. Her research has been prominently featured in a number of publications. Zach Wienersmith makes the webcomic Saturday morning breakfast cereal. Thank you both for being with us so much. Um, it sounds like you started this research project several years ago, um, expecting you'd be rather bullish on colonizing space, but it took a turn the more you learned. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's fair to say. And thanks for having us on the show. And so when we were working together on uh, Soonish, we were pretty convinced that space settlements might be a near-term possibility. So when we set out to write this book, we thought we were writing the guide to, you know, space settlements in the next decade. But after about two years into the four-year research project, it became a book about how there's a lot more work left to do. Well, and what? So, what are the, uh, first of all taking human health into account? What are the biggest threats to humans with the long-term project of colonizing space? Well, physiologically, we know that when you're in space in low gravity, you lose bone density quite rapidly. Astronauts on the International Space Station lose bone density in their hips at a rate of about one percent per month. We don't know how far that's going to go because nobody's been in space more than 437 days and and very few people have been up for more than 300 days. An even bigger long-term concern, if you want to talk about settlement, not just going, is whether we can have babies in space. And the science is very equivocal and there are a lot of reasons to be worried and there's not a lot of money being spent to get answers. What So what are the potential problems with procreation uh, in a low-gravity environment, for example? Well, so as Zach mentions, you lose bone mass in your hips when you're in free fall on a place like the International Space Station. If you go to somewhere like Mars, you'll have about 40% of the gravity you have on Earth. And it's not at all clear yet that that would be enough to completely stop the loss of bone mass. And, you know, you can imagine as a woman going into labor who's been on Mars her entire life, you might be a little bit worried about how uh, your hips are going to hold up to something like that. Uh, and additionally, we our space has a lot of radiation that our astronauts are protected from by the magnetosphere when they're on the International Space Station. But Mars doesn't have a magnetosphere. So on Mars, you're going to be exposed to just about all of the radiation that space has to offer, which could also be bad for babies. Yeah. And even if it's it's found that procreation is safe and, and possible uh, in an environment like Mars, how how do you assure that there's enough genetic variety, that there are enough people that um, you don't do genetic harm? That is a really good question, and we don't have a lot of answers. Conservation biologists are interested in that question for just uh, endangered species on Earth. A very rough rule of thumb is that you need at least 500 members. The, the math can get a little complicated because obviously if you if like those 500 are geriatric, you're, you're out of luck. Um, 
But for humans, we don't know. There was a computer simulation that said you could actually take it down to something like 100 humans if all mating choices are decided by computer. We suspect people will not be super excited about that. More realistic <laughs> numbers are probably in the 10,000 to 30,000 uh, range, depending on assumptions like what if there's a one-time plague that kills a third of your population? So pr probably at least in the five figures. Well, it'd just be the next version of Tinder, right? It just takes the personal selection <laughs> out of out of the process. And, but but algorithmically... Tinder. Yeah. You, you, yeah, yeah. Obeying the computer. I, I mean, having not had the privilege, I don't think you're obligated to obey an AI uh, when you use Tinder. Maybe. I don't know. No, don't know no. People... You're, but it, it, there are suggestions that are made, I'm sure. Uh, I'd love to hear from listeners questions about colonizing space. That is the focus of, it's actually a very funny book as well, A City on Mars. Can we settle space? Should we settle space? And have we really thought this through? The humor and scientific research of Kelly and Zach Wienersmith are on display in the new book. We're at 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Now, we've talked about this clinically, but what about sex itself? Uh, uh, you know, could that even be better in a lower gravity environment? <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah, it, it, it might be more fun when you have less gravity. You might bounce around for a little bit longer uh on on the international space station uh, a place like that where you're in free fall it might be a little bit more complicated because when you have no gravity holding you down you might accidentally you know push your partner to the other up to the opposite wall there are designs like the snuggle tunnel where essentially you get two people in a pipe to try to hold them together or uh an unchastity belt which is like an elastic band that holds people together so People have thought about this. It, yeah. it could be more fun. Yeah, you just don't want injuries, like you said. Uh, very, very yeah. clear. Um, I also wanted to ask you about all these experiments, like biospheres and things that we have here on Earth to try and mimic what it would be like living in a hermetically sealed environment elsewhere. How good a job do those experiments do in, in replicating what it would be like elsewhere? Yeah. So, you know, one of the ironies of space settlement is the first thing you're going to try to do is block out the environment and create Earth in a sort of bubble that only permits things like sunlight. And we just don't have a lot of experiments on how to do that. So the Soviets conducted a series of small experiments like in the 60s. There are ongoing experiments now in Europe and China and Japan. The biggest ever was Biosphere 2. In the 90s, I, our experience has been some people think they conflate it mentally with the Polly Shore movie from the yeah, same right. period. <laughs> a little um, different, yeah. A little, little <laughs> different, um, but, but it was a qualified success. It ran for two years. Eight people went in. Eight people came out. However, at one point, they were suffocating. Uh, at another point, uh, by the end, they were starving. They had lost 10 to 18% of body mass. But, you know, it was a three-acre facility that kept eight people alive. Whether we can build a city on Mars, well, it you know, if you want a million people and it scales uh, from eight people needing three acres, a million people would need a greenhouse the size of Singapore. That's a challenge. And again, nobody is spending the kind of money you'd need to spend to get answers on that kind of question. Not the agencies, not the billionaires. Michelle in Pasadena asks a very practical question. Can women menstruate regularly in space? I believe so. I, that, there are women astronauts who menstruate on, in space. I think that probably most of them, if I'm remembering our notes correctly, take birth control so that they can avoid the hassle. 
Uh, but there have been, you know, many tampons sent to space. I believe the best strategy was a tampon coupled with a pad because of some like capillary action. It still has a tendency to creep out. But but yes, <laughs> menstruation happens in space. But I think most of the astronauts currently decide uh, to not deal with it. As long as we're it. on the topic of bodily function, uh, when you're talking about a very lengthy trip on a spaceship to a place like Mars, um, human waste, do, do we have that down yet technologically how to deal with it? Uh, yes and no. So the way it works now essentially is there's a vacuum and a net and you go into the vacuum uh, because remember in space, you know, the, the poop doesn't know which way to go. So so this uh, pressure differential pushes it into a net, you capture it, you bag it, and then you stow it. So there are no attempts on the International Space Station or anywhere else to recycle it. We do recycle urine on the International Space Station. The joke is they call it yesterday's coffee. Um, <laughs> but but no, and, and you're right to bring that up. It's one of these things that seems kind of silly at first, but you realize like that's actually a really valuable source of fertilizer yeah. if you're trying to run a closed ecosystem. So they did that on Biosphere 2. They were able to, to use waste uh, for their system. We have no idea how to do that in space. It would be it would be very important because like on the moon, for example, there's not even a source of carbon. Like the poop is a source of the element carbon, which is which is very lacking in the moon. We'll continue our conversation with the co-authors of A City on Mars. Can we settle space? Should we settle space? And have we really thought this through? Uh, an educational and very fun and funny book. Kelly and Zach Wiener-Smith are with us. We'll be back with them in just one one minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. A few minutes ago, I shared the breaking news that the state legislative analyst office says California is facing a $68 billion budget deficit. And I've already started receiving uh, email messages from members of the state legislature commenting on this. I don't know whether they were ready to go, or, but that's fast. They're already out uh, expressing their concerns about it. And, of course, we'll have coverage in the days and weeks to come about the ways in which California will respond to this. But right now, we're thinking about space. Joining us are the husband and wife authors, Kelly and Zach Wienersmith, of A City on Mars, Can We Settle Space? Should We Settle Space? And have we really thought this through? It seems so obvious, Zach and Kelly, but in reading your book, as you describe the inhospitability of a planet like Mars or or the moon, um, what it would be like to actually set up a human colony there and describing it as just pretty much worse than any place we can imagine here on Earth, aside from like in the middle of an active volcano, um, that puts it in a whole different perspective. I hadn't felt, I hadn't really thought of it as that forbidding. Yeah, you know, I hadn't either before we started writing it. You look at photos of Mars and you can sort of imagine deserts on Earth that look sort of similar, but it's totally different. So, you know, on Mars, it has 1% atmosphere, so it's still thin enough that you have to go outside in a spacesuit or you die. Uh, you're exposed to a lot of radiation. The dirt on the ground is uh, is actually called regolith, and if you look at it under a microscope, it's much sharper and pointier than the dirt on Earth. So you have to worry about breathing it in because it might scar our lungs. Also, it gets kicked up into dust storms that can cover the entire planet and last for weeks. So you better not be relying on solar power alone. Uh, and it sounds like most of the proposals we looked at for living on Mars involved living in habitats 
that are underground where you pile dirt up. So, you know, I had imagined these beautiful glass domes, but most of the proposals we read involved living under a pile of dirt to protect you from the radiation. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's harsh out there. So it, it's kind of looks like, as you describe this, this is not going to be something uh, that humans wholesale are going to want to be a part of. It's There'll be people who, who think of themselves as adventurers or pioneers willing to withstand this. But it's not like uh, pioneers of the American West where the trade-off is these beautiful places and and um, all the things that come with it. This This is not like that. No, I mean, you know, th- there are a lot of comparisons to the American West, and we just think they're not very apt. I mean, that was land, of course, we know that was dispossessed from people. And and part of why you have to de- dispossess that land is it was quite valuable. There were all sorts of valuable natural resources. And you could, you know, more or less live off the land. And even then, lots of people died. Space is a situation where it is so dangerous, so far, so hostile. The people who go there are going to be funded by big finance and big tech. So the sort of fantasy that it's a kind of Davy Crockett out in the wilderness setting is just absurd. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, we, we actually have a paper we're working on about how you people should stop using the Wild West metaphor because it doesn't even correctly describe what the West was like in, in the American West. Uh, let's let's talk about the governance of space because there have been treaties dealing with space but are is there anything currently applicable to colonizing mars yeah so the 1967 outer space treaty is still applicable to anyone who wants to settle mars today and the main point of this treaty or the main points that are applicable to settling mars uh, are that you are not allowed to claim sovereignty over anything in space. So you couldn't, you know, send a bunch of Americans to Mars and say, oh, we got here first. This patch is ours. Uh, it's supposed to be, it's supposed to remain a global commons. There's some debate about what you can do about the resources. So can you extract something from the regolith, for example, and sell that? The United States interpretation of the Outer Space Treaty is that, yes, you can. Uh, and the global community is sort of trying to come to a consensus about what uh, what the rules are for resources. But but you're not allowed to land there and say, this is mine. What about, um, you know, uh, inter solar system <laughs> um, agreements? For, for example, um, is there any thought about if if you had uh, at at some point in many centuries in the future beings from another system that might come and want to lay claim, but humans had laid claim to Mars, for example, that there's there's no law that would deal with something like that, right? It would just be uh, who, who's willing to fight for it. Yeah, well, I mean, we don't know because I mean, so as an interesting example, you, know, you could think of the corollary when Europeans show up in what we we call the New World. You know, you do have two clashing, or actually, you know, at least two clashing legal systems for what property even means, and we know that didn't play out wonderfully um, historically. So, but 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 exactly what would happen? And you know, if aliens came here from from a distant star, they're probably vastly technologically advanced of us, and at least if they behave like humans have behaved when one side is technologically advanced, that doesn't. That doesn't bode so well. Yeah, and and uh, this is a job for um, for space ethicists, right, to figure out what the mm-hmm. what the ethical approach would be in in a circumstance like this. So, in in the research you did over the course of four years preparing for this book, were there at all positives that you were able to find for colonizing space? Yeah, so so first of all, we we still think it's awesome. We're we're sci-fi geeks and we just think the idea of humans living on another planet is fantastic. 
The other argument that we think is the most compelling is one that's sometimes referred to as the plan B argument. So if something catastrophic happens to Earth, you're going to want a bunch of humans somewhere else so the human species can continue. And we really like humans, uh, history notwithstanding. And so we would, you know, we'd like to see a backup made somewhere. But the, the difficulty is that to create a civilization on Mars that could survive the death of Earth is going to take a really long time. For a really long time, anyone living on Mars is going to need supplies from Earth. So we need to keep Earth going for a long time so that we can get, you know, the Martians established. All right. It sounds like even a battered Earth is going to be far superior than what we would find in our own solar system. Kelly and Zach, thank you both so much for joining us, talking about a city on Mars. We really appreciate it. It's been fun. Thanks for having us. Thank you. A city on Mars. Can we settle space? Should we settle space? And have we really thought this through? Kelly and Zach Wienersmith joining us. Uh, Kelly is uh, adjunct faculty at Rice University in Biosciences. And Zach uh, makes the webcomic Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereal. Coming up next hour on Air Talk. We'll be looking at uh, the triple-demic that um, we're seeing in some parts of the world. And there are concerns here in California that there are rising rates of RSV, even a bit in COVID and the flu. We'll be talking about uh, efforts to try and keep ourselves well through this uh, season where people typically get sick. We'll be back with uh, that in just a moment. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. I'm sure looking forward later this hour to hearing listeners who celebrate Hanukkah share some of their favorite experiences of the holiday traditions that are most meaningful to them, a way to really celebrate the joy of the holiday season. We'll also have an expert on Hanukkah who will answer questions about the holiday and share some of the interesting history of its celebration. That's coming up later this hour, but the segment will only work with listeners participating, so I look forward to having you call in and share your Hanukkah experiences later. Tomorrow on Film Week at 10 o'clock, I'll be joined by critics Christy Lemire, Peter Rayner, and Charles Solomon, and we'll hear about the new Yorgos Lanthimos movie, Poor Things, which is getting a tremendous 
tremendous amount of attention. Emma Stone not only stars in the film, she was one of the producers and worked closely with Lanthimos on the making of the film. Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe are also in the cast. This sounds like an incredibly wild story about uh, a woman brought back to life by an unorthodox scientist played by Defoe, and uh, she's implanted with the brain of, of uh, a small child and then essentially grows up but with this body of the woman and a series of wild experiences ensue. We'll hear about poor things uh, from our critics. That's tomorrow here on Film Week on LAS 89.3. But we begin with this uh, season in which we see cases of flu and respiratory ailments on the rise. Uh, maybe you've had a cold or something that's lingered. I have to say, I, I had this cold I got maybe three weeks ago. My lo- wife got it probably a month ago. We're still coughing. Even though we, we fully recovered, we still have the lingering effects of the cough. I understand this is not unusual with a respiratory thing that's going around. Last year, of course, we had the RSV threat to uh, young patients. Um, uh, pediatric hospitals were dealing with high numbers of kids dealing with the RSV lung infections. So with us to talk about the panoply of things that we try and protect against is Dr. Shruti Gohill, professor of medicine and associate medical director for epidemiology and infection prevention, UC Irvine School of Medicine. Dr. Gohill, welcome back. So good to have you with us. Great to be back, Larry. So let's start first of all. Thankfully, we're not seeing the RSV and kids phenomenon so far this year that we saw last year. What are we most commonly seeing here in Southern California with this season? Yeah, amongst those viruses, uh, you said it well, panoply of viruses. You know, it's it's a reality of human life that we have cold and flu seasons. There are um, hundreds of viruses actually that can that can float around and make us sick. Um, and amongst those that we actually measure, the top three, uh, especially past COVID, is COVID, influenza, and RSV. And so for those, we have good numbers. Um, and right now, it looks like amongst the three, the winner is uh, COVID in terms of active circulations and test positivity. We're seeing uh, slight increases uh, week on week, um, as we sort of expected after the holidays. Um, and, and influenza, you know, what... Uh, often all viruses uh, tend to start in the east and then migrate westward. We tend to see influenza peak sometime around uh, January, February uh, in, in in California. Um, and we look like we're about, you know, we're starting, we're seeing the upswing of influenza. Similarly for RSV, um, if you look at the curves, uh, epi curves for RSV positivity back uh, about a year ago, um, starting the end of September, uh, we're following almost that same steep uh, up climb that we did uh, last year around this time. So none of this is very surprising. Um, what's nice is that we have a, a potential uh, you know, vaccines out there uh, for RSV that we didn't have in years past. Who's recommended for the RSV vaccine? Yeah, um, well, the the most vulnerable, I mean, generally RSV, we should recognize, generally speaking, RSV is a mild cold in most, most people. 
Um, it's the young ones, the infants, less than six months, uh, less than eight months, are really, really um, are at high risk for this disease, uh, this type of virus getting deep inside the lungs. And then the elderly, uh, age greater than 60, uh, and certainly age greater than 80, much, much uh, higher risk. Um, and so those are the two groups that have been targeted for uh, vaccines. When we use the term common cold, are we talking about RSV and other things? What what does that mean? Yeah, the common cold, really, uh, adenovirus and some other coronaviruses actually um, make up the usual cold. Um, there are many, many others as well. Parainfluenza is another one that is um, often manifests like the common cold. And because, you know, we really didn't um, have don't still don't have good point of care testing uh, when patients um, come in with mild flu cold and flu sy symptoms. Really, the epi of those is really not known, but we know that it's a mixture of you know twenty plus viruses any given season. Can you even test for uh, these different causes of the common cold? You can't. You know, you can test them. It is true that there are tests out there. Um, they're extremely expensive. And, you know, medicine, we always make those decisions on, you know, what are you going to get out of this for the patient? If you don't have directed treatment for the typical cold and flu, what good is it to, to um, or if there are not severe consequences, what good is it to test? And so it hasn't hit the mainstream in terms of testing, but yeah, you could get tested. There, um, there, there are studies out there. It's just not in common use. We're talking with Dr. Shruti Gohill, who for several years, one of our regular COVID doctors, and we're so glad that she continues to be a friend of AirTalk on LAS 89.3. She's professor of medicine at UC Irvine School of Medicine, where she's also associate medical director for epidemiology and infection prevention. If you have any questions for her about RSV, about flu, about COVID-19, or any of the other respiratory ills that people are experiencing, we're at 866-893-5722, or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. For those of us that have had what we've taken to be a cold and, and, and still have a cough several weeks later, uh, any advice for us on how to deal with that? <laughs> Yeah, and it's a reality of almost um, any cold that has managed to create such a robust immune response uh, that your body, now now the body's job, after you get attacked by a virus, the body's job is to get rid of all those secretions. So actually your body is trying to protect you to get rid of all that, um, all the fluids and secretions that were used to fight the virus off in the first place. So don't be afraid of your cough. However, if you, um, if, if you develop you know, shortness of breath and cough, and you have other underlying comorbid conditions. You know that can really be um, a, a problem. So you wouldn't see your your physician. But in terms of actual treatments, um, you know, a, a couple of weeks out um, thereafter, it's oftentimes one of the biggest things you can do is actually get out there and exercise, get get circulated. Um, hydration is a big part of getting all those getting movement in your body, and that includes uh, your um, lung tissue. Uh, so hydration. Um, and, you know, those those old treatments, you know, honey, I'm a big believer in these kinds of soothing treatments they, that can coat the back of your throat um, and help you, uh, you know, suppress your coughs. Yeah. Um, 
uh, my wife uh, gives me uh, honey and ginger tea, which um, is yeah. is actually extremely helpful. Not something I would drink of my own otherwise, but uh, does have medicinal properties. It seems at yeah. least soothing effect. We're at eight six six eight nine three five seven two two. My recollection of last year is that it was a a bit tougher to get people to take a flu shot. There seemed even a year ago to be a bit of of um, mm. inoculation resistance. And mm-hmm. I wonder if if you've seen that at all this year, or are people back to getting flu shots in, in the way they did pre-pandemic? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think we're at the same level as you know, sort of general malaise with taking all of these um, shots. Um, you know, overall, our COVID-updated vaccine uh, has not seen as much uptake as we had hoped. Um, we're under 20% in some areas, and less than 10% of, of uh, people have gotten the updated vaccine for COVID. Uh, for influenza, you know, on a good year uh, in the past, we used to hit uh, 20 to uh, 60%, depending, you know, that's how variable it was year on year for influenza uptake in the general population. And um, right now, I think we're seeing about the same, you know, we're not as much uptake. So I agree with mm. you. And I have to say, um, you know, as a proponent um, of, of vaccines, because I see the opposite, I see people coming into the hospitals with severe disease, you know, there's a lot you can do to protect um, yourself and the public with getting vaccinated. Leslie in downtown Los Angeles wonders if there's any truth to the advice often given that oregano is helpful for breathing issues and uh, can help with viruses. Oh my goodness, I love that question. And so many others there there, you know, I think we're just scratching the surface of what it, what our ancestors may have understood in the absence of you know medicinal treatments uh, now recognized and well studied medicinal treatments. you know now we're only now uncovering sort of the older um, older materials. You know, the truth is there's no actual data for the the use of oregano or some of these other um, herbal types of treatments. I think that data is emerging. Uh, if you, there are basic science studies that do show that herbals, and I'm not, I can't speak to oregano in specific, mm-hmm. but there are as herbs that if you were to put them on a Petri dish uh, or excuse me, with a viral culture, would you be able to sur- suppress viruses? Yeah, you probably would, but that's not, it's not clear that that can, um, that can body. actually, yeah, it, that, that is clinically. One thing I will say is zinc. Um, it, there are studies in particularly in COVID. Uh, there was a nice study that was published as a randomized control trial that did show a good signal for zinc um, being effective in COVID. All right. Nicole in Santa Monica said for a lingering cough, I've, I found it helpful to get an inhaler that helped open up my airways. Nicole, thank you very much. Appreciate you sharing that. I was going to say with Leslie, at the very least, oregano has that wonderful aroma. So you can yeah. enjoy that if nothing else. Uh, Jasmine in Culver City says, I have a four-month-old baby. I recently took him to get mm-hmm. his four-month vaccination where he was also offered an RSV vaccine. Uh, It feels like such a relief to have him vaccinated. I hope others take advantage of the RSV vaccine. That's Jasmine in Culver City. 
Our uh, health care reporter, Jackie Fortier, reported, though, that there is a shortage of the RSV shot uh, for kids. And um, there has been um, tens of thousands of doses shipped to pediatricians and hospitals. But um, there certainly has been a shortage as well. Yeah, yeah, there has been. And um, really, it's an expensive uh, vaccine uh, as well, if you don't have the right coverage. And, um, you know, the truth is, is that um, whether it's health inequities or other reasons, you know, uh, physicians have to make choices, uh, physicians and actually patients have to make, you know, difficult choices all the time, uh, given the issues that we have in our our, our U.S. health system. And, um, and you know, RSV and COVID are, are times when it's dramatically evident. Um, and I, I, this doesn't give comfort um, to, to people who can't afford uh, RSV vaccine. But, um, but it, yes, um, it's nice to know that when covered, it is available um, and you should take full advantage. And the other, actually, the other bigger point to make is if you're pregnant, um, getting vaccinated while you're in your um, 32 to 36 weeks in to your pregnancy can be so protective for your child. Then your child wouldn't have to have the uh, vaccine after birth. Um, your antibodies would kick in after birth and protect the child through six months. Uh, Jackie reports 77,000 additional doses are being immediately distributed through the Vaccines for Children program and commercial channels. But as she quotes an Orange County pediatrician, Eric Ball, there are about 10,000 babies born in the U.S. every day. So that <laughs> yeah. 77,000 doses would only cover about a week. So the challenge goes mm-hmm. on. Uh, Jackie also writing that in clinical trials, the shot reduced RSV hospitalizations and health care visits in infants by almost 80 percent. So highly, highly effective. Uh, We have a question from Andrew in Westwood, Dr. Gohill. Should someone experiencing long COVID symptoms get the new COVID vaccine? Oh, um, yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, there. In fact, it might even be more important um, in so far as it would preclude a more a, a repeat COVID event. You know, we don't fully understand what happens with people with long COVID when they get a second uh, COVID infection, but we would presume that your long COVID would uh, get worse. Um, and so the. Yes, um, vaccination is unfortunately the only protection we have. We don't have an actual treatment for COVID. And so um, the advice would be to go ahead and take that vaccine. Mike in Long Beach says, I tried to uh, find a way to get the RSV vaccine yesterday. I'm a veteran and the VA isn't giving out uh, RSV vaccine. I could spend $400 out of pocket at a drugstore. But even so, it's hard to find. That's Mike in Long Beach. Mike, thank you for sharing your experience. And I want to thank you, as always, Dr. Gohill, for joining us and talking about the concerns over a potential triple whammy from flu, RSV, and COVID-19. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Take care. Appreciate it. Dr. Shruti Gohill, UC Irvine School of Medicine, professor of medicine there and associate medical director for epidemiology 
and infection prevention. Coming up, I want to hear from you what's most meaningful for you about Hanukkah if you celebrate the holiday. Share with us a particular family tradition, which may not be necessarily a a Hanukkah tradition per se, but is something that your family has incorporated into the holiday. I'd love to hear your personal thoughts about it at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email me your appreciation of Hanukkah at eight comments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Back with you in a minute. That's the late, great Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. You know, we had her on air talk just a short time before she passed. She was very sick when I had the chance to talk with her. And just an extraordinary person. And what a great musician. Boy, did we miss her. But so great to hear her celebrating eight days of Hanukkah. My first knowledge of Hanukkah, I was four, almost five years old. And I went... Um, from our, our what's now called Baldwin Village apartment building to my friend Larry Cohen's apartment next door. And we were playing uh, in, in his room, and um, he said to me, he said, we're ready to celebrate Hanukkah, and it's better than Christmas because we get gifts on eight days. And I asked him, what, what's Hanukkah? And so, it, you, you know, we're four or five years old, and he's explaining to me. That was my first thought of Hanukkah, this, this holiday where you get gifts on eight consecutive days. And, of course, Hanukkah this year, I think, of particular importance for so many who celebrate the holiday because of the tragedy of what's unfolded in Gaza and in Israel. So please, if you're someone who celebrates Hanukkah, this is a chance to enjoy the pleasures of the holiday, what it means to you, particularly this year, um, how it's evolved as you've grown up from childhood to now, and if you have particular family traditions which are meaningful to you and have been fun traditions that maybe go beyond just those of of the holiday specifically, uh, but are around Hanukkah, give us a call. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722, or email us at atcomments at las.com. Joining me is Tamar Fagan, who is our news apprentice. She's been with us for just a few months, joining us fairly shortly after graduating college. And uh, Tamar, I just wanted you to come on and, and tell us a bit about what Hanukkah means to you. Yeah, thanks for having me on air today, Larry. One of, I think, my favorite kind of holiday Hanukkah traditions is the fact that my family doesn't just light one menorah when we light the candles. We have five. Um, The first is a family heirloom on my mom's side. The second was a wedding gift. And the three others were ones I made in preschool attending the uh, Westside JCC. They're all um, wooden. They consist of wood, uh, hexagonal nuts and bolts, 
um, and the avant-garde uh, finger painting <laughs> practice of a preschool. Which every parent yeah, should have. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they're great, and they've lasted my family all these years, and we like all five We have five Christmas versions of our sons with the finger painting. Really? Yeah. 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 So, And he also did a menorah in school as well, which, which, which we have. You brought in a photo of yourself uh, from the JCC preschool, and all you kids, very cute there with the menorahs that you've yeah. made. That's, that's very sweet. You also brought... Uh, a confection in, mm-hmm. um, which is from Schwartz Bakery, uh, and it looks like a, a jelly donut with powdered sugar on top. What do you call this? That's a soufgan yot. So it's a, a special treat we have in Hanukkah, which is exactly what you said, Larry. It's, it's a jelly donut. Um, my understanding is the origin of it. It's an Israeli um, treat, but that the actual jelly filling is something that stems from a European practice in Poland. Um, and I, growing up, I wasn't a fan. I hated the fact that the donuts had the jelly in it. I wasn't, I didn't really like it that much. But now as an adult, it's one of my favorite parts of Monica. I just took my first bite. It's really yeah, what good. Do you think really, you really good. I is know. this kosher? It is. It's good. Um, Schwartz's is a really good kosher bakery on Beverly. Um, and it's one of my favorites. Thank you for this. This mm-hmm. is absolutely delicious. So what are, are you are you doing um, the lighting tonight with your I folks? I will. I will. I'll be doing the lighting tonight. Um, and we'll be we'll be lighting all five all five menorahs, which is many many candles. I'm I'm curious if listeners also have that practice. I I don't know if no. that's a common for them to there to be multiple uh, menorahs in lighting the candles. And and what does it mean to you in terms of of family tradition? And I mean particularly when this year is so fraught. What what does Hanukkah mean during this time? Yeah, I think. In Judaism, there are so many ways of practicing Judaism that it's easy for certain holidays to be practiced differently. But Hanukkah is one of the few Jewish holidays in which there's kind of the same practice across the board. You know, everyone lights the menorah, everyone plays dreidel, everyone, um, you know, eats the sufganayot. And I think that's something that's really meaningful to me is it's something that it's a holiday where truly everyone can come together and practice the same thing. Tamar, thank you for sharing mm-hmm. your personal thoughts about Hanukkah. Great way to kick us off. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much. Tamar Fagan, one of our news apprentices who, I should just say, does wonderful work. She puts together the research files that I use to prepare for the segments on AirTalk. So she's an invaluable part of our team and our news apprenticeship program. Takes people that are typically recently out of school and gives them what's their first full-time job uh, in journalism journalism working on our program. I'd love to hear from you sharing your Hanukkah experience. What does the holiday mean to you, particularly this year? What are some of your favorite traditions? This really uh, relies on participation of listeners who celebrate Hanukkah. 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. We're also very pleased to have with us Professor of Contemporary Jewish Studies and Director of the Jewish Language Project at Hebrew Union College, the Jewish Institute of Religion, Sarah Bunin Benor. Thank you, Professor Benor, for joining us. We appreciate it. Hi, Larry. Happy to be here. So, uh, first of all, share with us how Hanukkah became the prominent holiday that it has, because it, it, it's been historically a comparatively minor Jewish holiday. 
That's right. It was a minor Jewish holiday celebrating an ancient military victory of Jewish traditionalists over assimilationists. And then in the Talmudic period became uh, a holiday more focused on the miracle of a small bit of oil lasting for eight days. And in America, it's become a very popular holiday as an alternative for Christmas uh, on the influence of Christmas with gift giving and decorations and more celebrations than there would have been in previous locations. And uh, how was this, you know, obviously with Christmas this time of year and, and Hanukkah um, being in close proximity to it, that's helped to raise the profile. But I just wonder if it also, the meaning of it has become richer because, you know, with families celebrating over the over the years and multi-generations, if it's now become, even though it started as a minor holiday, an important Jewish holiday. Yes, uh, I think it, it is now, because of its time of year, I think people do tend to gather as families, although because the Jewish calendar isn't always at the same time as the uh, Gregorian calendar, it sometimes uh, isn't as convenient as when it's over winter break, as when it's over winter break. But um, yeah, I think most uh, families do uh, enjoy this as, as a very special time of year. Well, what's the origin of the dreidel? Well, the dreidel was a German uh, top, just a game that people played, and it had four letters on it indicating what happens when you get that letter. Either you get half of the pile of coins or you get them all or you put one in. And uh, then Jews adopted that and it became associated with the holiday of Hanukkah. And it um, they replaced the Latin letters with Hebrew letters. And then when that dreidel, uh, which means top, spread to other parts of the world where they didn't speak Yiddish and didn't know the Yiddish words that those words that those letters referred to, um, they adopted a new phrase, which was Neskadol Hayasham, a great miracle happened there. And that became um, what the letters stood for on the dreidel. Uh, so it's a fun game that that a lot of American Jews continue to play, um, often with chocolate coins known as gelt. We're talking with Professor of Contemporary Jewish Studies at Hebrew Union College, Sarah Bunin-Benor. Uh, let's talk with Michael in your Belinda. Michael, please share your Hanukkah tradition. So the tradition that we have is uh, when we light the candles, then we have a betting game as to which will be the last candle to burn out. <laughs> uh, I've been doing this all my life. I'm 74 years old. I did it with my brother, who's younger than I am. Now I have two grandchildren, ages eight and six, and we play the game, too. What are the stakes in the in the bet? Uh, well, <laughs> I'd like to say it's money, but it's really bragging right <laughs> Okay. All right. Michael, thanks so much. 866-893-5722. I want to hear your Hanukkah tradition, as well as what the holiday means to you. Did you have a particularly meaningful Hanukkah over the years? 
one that that represented maybe healing in a difficult time of your life or world events that were challenging, something that made a particularly special Hanukkah for you. It's a chance to share with your fellow Air Talk listeners. 866-893-5722. Chuck in Westwood, so many Jewish holidays feature particular food, and one of my favorites for Hanukkah are potato pancakes. Professor Benor, uh, talk about the origins of, of uh, latka, please. Yeah, well, because the holiday celebrates oil, there are traditions around the world of eating fried foods. And latkes, the potato latkes that we know, couldn't have been in Eastern Europe before the 15th century, 16th century, when potatoes made their way over there from the New World. Um, Originally, latkes, um, or what became latkes, were um, some kind of cheese pancake, and that was somehow associated with the story of Judith, which became associated with the story of Hanukkah, and um, and then they developed into the potato latkes that we know now and enjoy in American Jewish celebrations. All right. Um, and we mentioned uh, the sufganiot. I hope I pronounced that close to correctly, that I have yeah. right in front of me, which is absolutely delicious. And uh, Tamar was saying that she thought uh, that the jelly uh, was introduced in Poland. Um, do you know any more about the history of, of these jelly-filled donuts? I don't know that detail, uh, but I do know that they're quite popular in Israel. Um, But fried uh, desserts are common for Hanukkah around the world. And so there are various Sephardic versions of these little fried dough balls. Um, And the jelly donuts that became so popular in Israel are now also quite popular among American Jews. Omri in Beverly Hills says, my family takes on a little extra learning about Judaism and what's going on in the world and make strong efforts to be kind and to try and make a positive difference. Omri, thank you very much. And Robert in Venice says, I try to light the candles at least one a night and I think about my ancestors. Robert, thank you very much. Again, I'd like to hear from you, your Hanukkah tradition at 866-893-5722. Um, growing up in a neighborhood with a lot of Jewish residents, it was very frequent to see the blue lights instead of the multicolored Christmas lights uh, at the time that I was growing up. When did the blue lights get introduced? Oh, I don't know exactly when, but it's become quite popular, I think, in the last few decades. Um, when I was growing up in the Washington, D.C. area in the 70s and 80s, we didn't have uh, lights on our house. And um, I think a lot of people do avoid the lights because they see them as too Christian. Um, But we did have decorations inside our house, which again was an innovation based on Christmas because I think in places that Jews immigrated from to America, they didn't tend to decorate their homes for Hanukkah. Margie and Van Nuys emailed, My son came home from preschool many years ago crying that Santa wouldn't come to our house because we're Jewish, and so he didn't want to be Jewish anymore. After quick thinking, I said to him, But the Hanukkah man comes for eight nights, and that year my husband and I would leave presents at our doorstep, so my son thought there was a Hanukkah man who came for eight nights. We did this for one year. Margie, thank you for sharing that story. Esther in Hollywood, good to have you with us. Please share your holiday Hanukkah tradition. Hi, wow, what an honor, such a fan. 
Um, first of all, uh, we light um, a Hanukkah per person in the in the household, so one per person, um, because the the commandment is like to display the you know to display the miracle. So each person is kind of like on them to display the miracle. Um, and another kind of quirky tradition that just is particular to my family, which is part you know Middle Eastern Jewish and and my dad's from Brooklyn. Um, so European ancestry, he's from Brooklyn. So he's got this tape in the 90s of like these uh, young boys in their choir and like there's a narrator who's like this adult, and, you know, and asking questions and then they sing songs that are particular hymns for Hanukkah. But they've got these very like um, kind of New York Jewish accents in the English and also in the type of Hebrew and it's just so endearing because it really reflects like a particular culture, yeah. a certain part of the, the New York Jewish community. It's it's very cheesy but adorable. Oh, that's so, great! Once again, Esther, thank you. I really appreciate you sharing that, Sally in Encino. Please share your Hanukkah tradition. Hi, Will Larry. Thank you for having me on. What I would specifically like to share this year because it's a very different year in terms of what's going on in this country with anti-Semitism, is that there is a tradition of lighting the menorah on a table by the window so that everyone can see you know, the, the, the light of the menorahs. Yeah. And it, it's a quite wonderful thing. This year, many of my friends are debating whether or not to do that, you know, in terms of what it means to yeah. publicize yeah. that it's a Jewish home. And on the other side of that, there is a program of Project Menorah encouraging people of all faiths to buy menorahs, put them on the table by the window, you know, so that there is, you know, a sense of, of, of unity. I like um, that. You know, of, yeah. Sally, that's, and obviously this is a personal decision for any Jewish Angelino to make, but... Um, but that would be so sad if people felt that it wasn't safe to put menorahs in the window to to share their faith and what its meaning is to them. That would be very sad if if the anti-Semitism we see had a chilling effect on that. Again, I, I respect however anyone decides, um, you know, for their, their own safety. But um, that that would be that would be tragic. Sally, thank you so much. I appreciate your call. Professor Benor, in closing, what are your traditions that you celebrate for, for Hanukkah with your family? Well, we uh, light the menorah, we eat the latkes and the sufganiyot, we play dreidel, and given my interest in Jewish languages, we sing songs in several languages, in Jewish English, in Hebrew, in Yiddish, and Latino. That's terrific. Professor, thank you for being with us talking about the history of Hanukkah. We appreciate it very much. Thank you. That's Professor um, Sarah uh, Bunin Benor of Hebrew Union College, where she's professor of contemporary Jewish studies and directs the Jewish Language Project. It's Air Talk on LA, it's 89.3. Olami Shara Andy in Hollywood says, I have a tradition of Hanukkah Harry, where kids put little notes in their shoes to Hanukkah Harry, and they put them in front of the front door thanking him. Andy, thank you for sharing that. Coming up, it's TV Talk, our critics with the best of streaming and network television when we're back in 90 seconds.
Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Democracy needs to be heard. This is Michelle Martin from NPR's Morning Edition. What does journalism have to do with democracy? The research shows that when trustworthy journalism thrives, so does civic participation. Reporters from LAist and NPR are here to keep your community engaged and informed. And that's why we need your support. By donating now, you're keeping journalism and democracy strong. Donate now at LAist.com give. And thank you. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Reminder, tomorrow is Film Week with critics Peter Rayner, Christy Lemire, and Charles Solomon. And I'm looking forward to hear what they have to say about the Victorian-era set Poor Things from director Yorgos Lanthimos, Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe star in the piece, which has gotten a tremendous amount of early attention. But it's television we talk about now, TV Thursdays, with our critics Angie Hahn of The Hollywood Reporter and Liz Shannon Miller of Consequence, where she's senior entertainment editor. We begin with the romantic drama My Life with the Walter Boys. It's streaming on Netflix and stars Nick Rodriguez, Sarah Rafferty, and Mark Blucas. Angie, please tell us about My Life with the Walter Boys. Uh, it's an adaptation of a book by Ali Novak. I haven't read it, but that's just where it comes from. And it's about a teenage girl from New York, Jackie, who loses her entire family in a car crash. So she subsequently moves in with the Colorado Ranch family, who have not one, not two, not three, or four, or five, but nine sons. Those are the Walter Boys. Six of them are in high school with her, and two of them fall madly in love with her basically immediately. So it's mostly a teenage love triangle story along the veins of something like The Summer I Turned Pretty on Amazon. Although there's, you know, some other plot lines about Jackie grieving her family and her foster parents having financial troubles, as you might do if you have that many mouths to feed. And the other Walter boys, various romantic entanglements and stuff like that, which sounds like pretty standard, you know, teen soap fair. And I've li- liked a lot of those types of shows in the past, but I'm sorry to say I did not really like this one at all. It's it's not so much that it's like offensively bad. It's harmless. It's just really, really generic. Like it felt to me when I was watching it, like someone kind of cobbled together a bunch of teen drama tropes into an outline of a show and then shot that without getting around to adding much in the way of like humor or depth or nuance or personality so like a lot of times you can kind of see what they're going for but the proportions fill off like the jerk with the heart of gold figure is you know too much jerk and not enough heart of gold yeah which made it really hard to invest in the relationships and so i don't know i mean i get the appeal of this kind of comfort watch teen soap opera but i didn't find much charm in this one and i think if i were in the mood for that i would tune into one of the many many other great shows in that genre (laughs) lot to choose from my life with the walter boys all 10 episodes premiering today on netflix it's rated tv 14 the four-part british series archie depicts the life 
life of Cary Grant, whose real name was Archibald Leach. Uh, Jason Isaacs, Laura Aikman, and Kara Toynton star in uh, the series. It's a limited four-part series from Jeff Pope. Liz, what did you think of Archie? Archie is kind of fascinating because it's uh, a you know it's a limited series. It's essentially a pretty an extended biopic of Cary Grant's life, but it's told from two different with two things in mind. One, it's based in part on Diane Cannon's uh, writings about being married to Cary Grant. So there's this, there's that perspective on uh, what it's what he was like as a person, but it's also very much approaching Cary Grant as. Cary Grant was a character played by the man named Archibald Leach. And there's some, like Jason Isaacs is pretty incredible in this role. And he takes the character of Cary Grant as played by Archie Leach to some pretty dark places. This is not like a loving portrait of Cary Grant as a man. This is a, what feels like a pretty honest depiction of what he was actually like, which wasn't always the best kind of husband or husband or person to be around. Yeah, I read the book uh, and talked with her about it when when she wrote it a number of years ago. I'm interested to see the series. We're talking about Archie, which is streaming on BritBox, four-part limited series starring Jason Isaacs as Cary Grant, Jeff Pope, the creator. All four episodes are streaming starting today. Also on Netflix, Blue Eye Samurai, Maya Erskine, Brenda Song, Kenneth Branagh, George Takei uh, star in the series, which was created by Amber uh, Noyazumi and Michael Green. Angie, what do you think of Blue Eye Samurai? Oh, this one I liked. It's an adult animated series about, you know, a blue-eyed samurai named Mizu, played by Maya Erskine, whose mixed-race heritage makes her an outcast in this rigidly homogenous Edo-era Japanese society. And when I say adult animated series, I mean it really is for adults. Like, the most of the plot is this revenge quest that she's on to track down the four white men who were in Japan at the time of her birth, and therefore might be the potential fathers that she blames for turning her into this pariah. So it's really, really violent with lots and lots of scenes of her just slicing and dicing her way through lots of henchmen or kind of, you know, dueling with bigger villains. The show in general is really beautifully animated, but the art action in particular is just stellar. And then add to that the fact that significant chunks of the plot line take place in and around brothels. It's a show that's not that's pretty sexy and not really coy or embarrassed about it, which is which is refreshing. Um it's just really fun. It's really well paced with really engaging characters and lots of lots of emotion and even a fair amount of humor. Um, so yeah, I mean this this one I found to be really fun. It's uh, I think it does a great job of painting this historical Japanese setting as kind of exciting and different without overly exoticizing it. And it does have a um, very um, almost entirely Asian or Asian American cast, with the only white star being Kenneth Branagh. So that's also kind of an interesting angle to it. I don't think it's necessarily all that deep, but it's super entertaining. I had such a good time watching it, and it ends on a note that made me really hope for a second season. We're talking about the series Blue Eyes Samurai Rated TVMA. All eight episodes are streaming now on Netflix. Uh, Doctor Who's 60th anniversary specials uh, that are on on Disney Plus, uh, starring David Tennant, Catherine Tate, Neil Patrick Harris, Cindy Newman, the creator. Liz, can uh, you tell us about the specials, please? Uh, yeah, so the very exciting thing about Doctor Who celebrating its 60th anniversary this year is that they brought back David Tennant, who originally played the 10th Doctor. Uh, they also brought back Russell T. Davis, who initially kicked off the run of modern day Doctor Who that began in 2005, that has made it into a revived pop culture entity. And 
what's so great about these specials, they've aired two so far. The third is going to premiere this upcoming Saturday, and it's going to be followed by a Christmas special, which will actually, which will premiere on Christmas that will introduce the doctor following David Tennant's doctor. The important thing here is that these first two episodes so far have been just really fun, just joyful sci-fi Doctor Who action, the kind that you, the kind that made me personally fall in love with the show back in 2005. And so it's a real treat to see uh, kind of that same energy return and hopefully it'll carry through up into, up through 2024 and this new Doctor's arrival. Doctor Who's 60th anniversary specials are streaming on Disney+. Plus. Uh, two of the episodes are out. The third will be releasing this coming Saturday and then the Christmas special that Liz was just talking about. When we come back, we'll hear about the Apple TV Plus series, The Buccaneers, as well as Hannah Waddingham's Home for Christmas, an Apple TV Plus Christmas special. Of course, Waddingham of... uh, of Ted Lasso, an incredibly talented actor and singer, and I'm sure uh, her very versatile talents will be put to good use. We'll find out all about that and more when we come back in just one minute. It's TV Talk every Thursday. We bring it to you on uh, Air Talk. Film Week is tomorrow at 10 o'clock with our critics reviewing the new film from Yorgos Lanthimos, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. But next up on our TV Talk with Liz Shannon Miller and Angie Hahn is the Apple TV Plus drama The Buccaneers, starring Christine Froseth, Alicia Bow, and Matthew Broom. Angie, what did you think? Um, this one kind of, it took a while, but it eventually really grew on me. I feel like the elevator pitch for this one must have been Edith Wharton meets Fredericton with a little bit of the Gilded Age thrown for good measure. It's based on Wharton's unfinished novel, but cast in that kind of poppy modern vibe with like Taylor Swift and Phoebe Bridgers on the soundtrack. So it's about these New York, these New York new money socialites who head to England in search of uh, cash poor, but title rich aristocratic husbands, which is a Real TV, or was it, sorry, which is a real historical phenomenon that in TV terms you can think of as the reason why the mom on Downton Abbey was American. Yeah. So initially it's this really giddy girl power culture clash, which, you know, kind of didn't work for me at first. The dichotomy seemed really simple. The tone seemed really kind of self-congratulatory, but it gets interesting the further the story goes and the more it punctures the fairy tale it seems to be setting up at first. And, you know, the cast really comes into their own, especially Christine Froseth, who put who delivers such a lovely, warm performance. So uh, I don't think the whole thing works, but I found myself pretty hooked by the end. It was created by Catherine Jakeway's The Buccaneers, streaming on Apple TV+. Plus. Seven episodes are out, the eighth and final releases next Wednesday, December 13th. Hannah Waddingham, Home for Christmas, is on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, the star of Ted Lasso uh, brings together some of the stars of Ted Lasso, as well as other celebrities in the program directed by Hamish Hamilton. Liz, what did you think? Yeah, this is a totally non-objectionable, pleasant way to spend 45 minutes, especially if, like, you know, you're decorating a tree and you just want to listen to a beautiful voice sing some beautiful Christmas songs. Uh, Hannah Waddington also looks fabulous throughout this whole thing. Uh, she just she builds in multiple uh, dress changes, and they're all funny. They're all really 
beautiful dresses and she also handles that in a funny way it's a it's a, a very pleasant way to reconnect with all your favorite ted lasso friends and uh just also hear some good music does jason sudeikis sing uh I, you know what? I'm gonna lay, I'm gonna say that's a bit of a surprise towards the end. Oh, okay, that. all right, very good. Don't want to spoil it. Hannah Waddingham, Home for Christmas, streaming on Apple TV Plus. It's available now. Rated TV PG, so family friendly. And Far Away Downs, a Hulu streaming series starring Nicole Kidman, Hugh Jackman. Brian Brown and Brandon Walters. This is quite the elite of Australian actors, uh, directed by uh, Baz Luhrmann, who created Far Away Downs, uh, a six-chapter reimagining of Australia's how it's built. Angie, how does it deliver? Um, well, when you say reimagining, it's really just like an extended cut of Australia, basically. I think there's about an hour total of new footage, including a whole new ending, which I, I do think is more poignant than the one originally. But I mean, I think it doesn't change. It, it, it does feel like overall a slight improvement on the movie, but maybe not one that, at least in my opinion, kind of justified revisiting it in this much longer form. If anything, I really miss the fact that so much of what worked or sometimes didn't work about Australia was how much of a movie movie it felt like like how cinematic it was and how much it was modeled after these enormous epics so I kind of miss that sense of grandeur if anything there I understand there's an alternate ending in this series treatment of it as opposed to when it was edited together as the theatrically released movie Yes. Uh, so at the time when he originally shot it, he shot a few different endings and then, you know, he eventually picked the one that went into theaters. But I guess he saw this as his opportunity to go with a different one. And I think the original uh, felt a little too pat for me. So I did prefer the the new one, which is a little bit more bittersweet. I don't want to say everything that happens in it. But uh, okay. <laughs> if it if it's something that you had strong opinions about, maybe maybe you could rewatch it for that. Again, it's Far Away Downs is the title of it, but essentially is is um, uh, a recut of Australia. Australia, the feature film starring Nicole Kidman, Hugh Jackman, Brian Brown, and Brandon Walters, Baz Luhrmann directing it, and uh, it's now in six episodes streaming on Hulu. Liz, what did you think of of the way it had been redone? Uh, I honestly, I disagree with Angie uh, in that I kind of hated the new ending. I didn't think it was necessary to uh, change change the tone of the film, but I honestly, I, I appreciated the fact that the recutting it meant. Uh, the element of the film that I always felt was a little too rushed was, which was the love story, got to play out in I feel like a much more organic and uh, believable fashion. So I, I was, it, it's a very, it's a weird phenomenon the recutting a movie to make it into a TV show thing. And I think what it, we were seeing is that it doesn't really create a great TV show. Uh, it just creates a slightly longer uh, a slightly longer movie with chapter breaks. But it's funny because if this would have really worked great, you could see where they might try this with other feature films where there's additional footage that they could add in. So instead of having, say, a director's cut theatrical re-release or or, or new uh, disc release, this, this, you know, I could see them wanting to do this just to beef up the amount of programming on streamers. Sounds like this is not going to encourage that. I mean, it, it's you're you're not wrong that it's actually still happening. Uh, they just recently did it with BlackBerry, the film that came out earlier this year. Oh, really? Uh, that oh, was, wow. That that uh, AMC Plus. Uh, it was it was developed originally as both a limited series and a movie, and they basically just kind oh. of had the best both worlds. But that 
the limited series version is currently streaming on AMC+. Far Away Downs, all six episodes are out and streaming now on Hulu. And my thanks to Angie Han of The Hollywood Reporter, where she's TV critic, and Liz Shannon Miller, senior entertainment editor at Consequence, for sharing their thoughts about the newest on streaming and network TV. Stay tuned, NBR's Here and Now comes up next. Tomorrow morning at 9, Austin Cross hosts the Hour of Air Talk. I'll join you at 10 o'clock for Film Week. Have a great rest of your day. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at las.com slash events. See you there.